Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. So, hello and welcome to another episode of Pod's Own Country, the Yorkshire Post political podcast. I'm Chris Byrne, the Yorkshire Post political editor, and this week we've got a great guest in the form of former Shadow Chancellor John McDonnell. John was born in Liverpool and grew up in Norfolk and initially considered becoming a priest before making the move into politics, being a key part of Ken Livingstone's Greater London Council during the 1980s and elected as an MP in 1997. Uh, He went on to become one of the most influential figures on the left of the Labour Party and was Jeremy Corbyn's shadow chancellor between September 2015 until early 2020 when Keir Starmer took over the leadership. Um, Well, welcome to the podcast. Um, Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Chris, for inviting me on. Um, We've got absolutely loads that I want to ask you about, so so let's get started. Um, So the first thing um, is that we've got the budget coming up next week. Um, and you are calling for the Barnet formula, which calculates effectively UK government grants to Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland to be applied on a regional level. Um, and basically, you suggest that that could help um, be central to restore, restoring some kind of funding parity to local authorities. And I think there's some figures that show that central government funding to councils in Yorkshire and the Humber um, has been cut by but by over actually 800, 800 million um, between 2015-16 and 2021-22. So, so can you tell me a little bit more about where this kind of ideas come from and how you see it helping it in practice? Two issues here. One is we've heard so much talk from the Prime Minister and I'm sure we'll hear it from the Chancellor next week about levelling up. And what I'm saying is, actually, we need to start levelling back some of the cuts that have been made since 2010 when the Conservatives took over, especially since they were a majority government from 2015. And in local government overall, the calculation is of how much they've taken away from local councils since 2010 is 100 billion. 100 billion. That's the first point. So let's not have any more of this publicity stunts around levelling up, what about levelling back? Because what that cut has meant is, you know, look at what's happening in virtually every area, really. It's about the closure of children's centres, libraries, local facilities closed down and cut back dramatically. And that's had an impact. It's had an impact on all of us, but especially for those who are the hardest hit. And that's usually children and pensioners and those living on a low income. That's the first point. The second point, I've been number crunching around 
capital expenditure. So this is expenditure on infrastructure. Now for local government expenditure, expenditure there's negotiations between central government and they apply different formula, most of which I think local councils are thinking not particularly fair. But on capital expenditure, there doesn't seem to be anything really guaranteeing a fair distribution of investment. So I'll, I'll just give you, give you one example. In London, um, per head on capital expenditure, there's what spent is about £1,480. Right? That's how much the government allocates to London per head. In Yorkshire and Humber, what we're saying is it's £694 less per person. I don't, want to get, you know, I don't want to mystify people with figures, but we're talking about if you live in Yorkshire and Humber on infrastructure, really essential infrastructure, you're getting just over half of what they spent in London. And that's historic. That's been going on for the last decade or so. So what I'm saying is, is that one way that Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland ensure that they get a fair crack of the whip is they have a Barnet formula, which basically guarantees that there will be a fair distribution of that capital investment. And that's what I'm saying is needed for the North now. I raised this, actually, interesting enough, I raised this a few years ago and said when if Labour went into government, we'd work this up in consultation and bring forward proposals. Now I'm saying, actually, I've heard all the rhetoric from Prime Minister and the Chancellor levelling up. I want levelling back. I want the cuts overcome. I want the investment for the future guaranteed in law by a Barnet formula. Because in Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland, if they, the government tries to um, allocate resources contrary to the Barnet formula, well, then those, the devolved administrations can challenge them. They can challenge them legally as well. So we cannot trust, I'm sorry about this, but it sounds about being cynical, I'm not, but it's past practice. We can't trust politicians in Westminster and civil servants in Whitehall to promise the earth, but then not deliver. This would give a way in which we'd guarantee the levels of investment that's needed. And I just think there's been, we've all said it, years and years of neglect in the North in particular. And it's been around investment in local authorities, but more importantly, actually investment in basic infrastructure. And if we're going to tackle something like climate change, we've got to make sure there's a fair distribution of the investment of those resources across the country so that actually we all tackle it in a way which impacts upon our regions fairly. That's all I'm asking for. And it's actually it's not it's not a big demand, to be frank. Well, my next question actually was going to be how realistic do you think it is that the government will take you up on on this suggestion? I think it's inevitable something like this is going to happen because people have had enough. But how is it right? You know, you said I, you know, I was born in Liverpool. So how is it right that the northwest, they, they get nearly 500 quid less than London? How That cat per head on capital, how can that be right when the needs in these areas historically have built up over time? In fact, there's a strong argument from northern England to actually say, I said we should be getting more than our fair share to make up for past lack of investment. I think if we introduce the Barnett formula, it would guarantee those levels of investment for the future. Politicians would find it virtually impossible to fiddle with for publicity stunts, etc. in the future. And I think people will have more confidence that the government is governing for the whole country, not just for London and the South East. And I speak as a London MP, 
I understand, you know, we've got areas of deprivation. My constituency is one of them. I have to say, if you're going to ensure there's faith in the democratic system, it has to be fair. Can I ask as well, um, what do you make then of of the wider levelling up agenda from the government? Because it, it sort of came into being as a concept around the 2019 general election. And to a certain extent, it's come to dominate politics, the political discourse. But are you seeing it? How do you see it as a concept? You know, do you think there's a genuine intention to do it or, or not? Interesting enough, um, when I took over as Shadow Chancellor, I did I did regional economic conferences all around the country. My first ones were in the north. My first one actually was in Liverpool. Then we moved over, and then I toured round. Um, it was every other Saturday with my Treasury team, and we were holding small town meetings as well. And we were basically saying, what are the issues that we need to address? Had some ideas ourselves and said, look, here's a menu of policies we're thinking of. Would it work here? Um, and what was great was the feedback then about just how, I can always remember some of the questions, how little investment there'd been and how there needed to be a fairer distribution. And that's why I said, well, actually, what we're going to do, you know, we'll do what Germany did, set up a national investment bank, but you'll have a regional arm in the north. It'll be the Bank of the North. So you'll be able to reinvest draw down that investment under your own control. We'll also have specific programs. And I then raised this issue of Barnett formula for, for the North and other, other regions. And in that way, I was arguing that actually there's an inevitability that this is going to happen. Since then, the, the Tories took it up. It became a big theme for Boris Johnson and his publicity. But uh, there's two things on that. The scale they're talking about, we have yet to see. And remember, I understand COVID, there's been a dis obviously people have had to divert their attention to COVID, but we've got to see real figures now about the scale of investments needed if this is going to happen, particularly as we face the existential threat of climate change. And the second thing is, it's got to be guaranteed for the future. It cannot be on the basis of, you know, what new project or idea or publicity stunt as Boris Johnson got out of bed with this morning. We've got to have stability. A part of it is, is making sure if you get that fair formula in place, you get the resources, then decision making is made at the local and regional level. On that basis, you're not just redistributing resources fairly, you're also redistributing power. And that's as important as the resources, because who knows better about what's needed in their region than the people who live there? You know, I can remember uh, I went up to Thelma Walker's constituency um, and uh, we we had a discussion with local businesses and local people, you know, and uh, again, what came out of that? Someone asked me, "How did you get here?" I said, "A train," and they said, "Was it was it cancelled or late?" I said, "Actually, funnily <laughs> enough, it was cancelled. You're right, I, I was delayed." And they said, "Well, that's a daily occurrence for many of us." The second thing, and this is where our broadband policy came from. I know it became controversial. Now it seems incredibly popular. But one of the local firms there said, do you want to know what our broadband speeds are like? They're dreadful. So no wonder people leave in the area and we can't attract small firms in. And they were, they were buzzing with ideas. They were so creative as well, these small companies. And I said, actually, what would you want? And they said, we need fast, we need fast broadband. Simple as that. You know, full fiber is the best one, not what the government's going for. And secondly, actually, we need it accessible to everyone. And I thought, well, the way to do that is to have it 
funded by the state itself, based upon taxation of the big companies, the high-tech companies themselves, the Googles and all the rest of this work, these companies, make sure they pay their taxes. And then we could put broadband in. And what would happen is if it was in public ownership, we'd be able to maintain proper provision overall, but it would be to the benefit of the whole community. And actually, that's becoming increasingly popular. I know in the general election, people are having a go at us for it. But that's where that idea came from. It actually came from Yorkshire. It was quite interesting mm. the way those ideas developed. Yeah. And I think you've got to listen to local people, but you've got to give them the resources and the power to get on with it. So do you mind me asking, obviously, you've come forward with, with this idea ahead of the budget. Can I ask you, does the Labour hierarchy, Keir Starmer, Rachel Reeves, know that you're doing this? Or is this something you've taken upon yourself to, to kind of put forward? Uh, this is taken upon myself because it's an idea I've been arguing for for a number of years. But remember, they, um, Keir in particular was in the shadow cabinet when I launched this idea way back um, 2015-16 and campaigned on it throughout. I actually do think there's, in going into government, one of the things that we said we'd do is we would rewrite um, the Treasury Green Book. Let me explain what that is. The Treasury Green Book is not about environment or green, it's just coloured green. <laughs> what it is, it sets out the criteria by which decisions are made, particularly around investment. And what we were finding is the rules that they were undertaking their investment decisions on at the moment through the Treasury Green Book basically was disadvantage in the rest of the country, but advantages in London and the southeast. It was almost building upon past investments. It was a self-fulfilling prophecy, uh, you know, basically saying, well, well, we'll invest it there because there's more passengers there. Well, there's more passengers there because you've invested in the past. If you invest elsewhere in the future, you'll build the passenger numbers. It's that sort of argument that we put it forward. So I brought in a team of um, experts who'd served in government um, in, in di different civil service departments, but also external experts as well. We wrote, rewrote the Green Book. And again, that was part and parcel of our campaign. I understand Rishi Sunak has been looking at rewriting the Green Book, but what I'm saying is you rewrite it to make sure it's tackling climate change. That's the first priority. The second is about investment in productivity and in the economy overall. But the third is about fairness and the distribution of that investment. And unless you get that, we'll, again, we'll always have a two-tier economy London, the southeast, firing ahead because of all the investment that goes in, and then others lagging behind. When you know, you, know, you just tour around. You know, I've got family up north in in Lancashire and in Liverpool. You tour around and you meet people. You know that creativity is enormous in the north, and people people are buzzing with ideas. They just need to be backed properly. That's the bottom point. It sounds as though a couple of things you've said, um, both kind of on the levelling up agenda that the Tories have to a certain extent taken on and then the green book idea do you feel that um the tories almost cherry picked some of the the, the ideas that well, you and jeremy see, Corbyn were, were putting forward i don't i don't mind them stealing the ideas as long as they do it properly but what they do is they steal their ideas our ideas as a publicity stunt and then pay lip service to them and don't deliver and We've just, you know, we're hearing announcements from government and we'll hear it through the budget about how we tackle climate change. We've got COP26 coming up and all the rest. We were advocating a Green New Deal, but whereby that investment on the Green New Deal was significant and was actually 
fairly distributed around the country. You know, we were looking at how you develop wave power in this country. Isn't it amazing? We invented the very early engineering to, to harness wave power, and yet it's happening all over the world and not in our country. So, you know, we had the regional, you know, the metro mayors, Stevie Rotherham, Liverpool, was talking about a, a barrage across the Mersey, which actually was relatively cheap, that would provide a, a, a electricity into Liverpool itself, the same with Morecambe and elsewhere. You could see that around the country. So I'm, I don't mind them stealing the idea, just get on and do it properly and cut out the publicity stunts now. People are getting bored with that. And I think people are beginning to lose faith in government overall because of the lack of delivery. And, and we have this pressure now from climate change. Um, as I say, it's an existential threat. This is the big crisis now. We've gone through one crisis with COVID. This is the big one. And a lot of it will rely upon infrastructure investment in, the, uh, in tackling some of those key issues around alternative energy sources and reducing our dependency on fossil fuels. This is the time to do it. I just hope there's a sense of urgency within government. I don't care if they pick up and steal our ideas. No, I just I wish they'd do it properly. But, uh, do, but do you think it puts Labour as a party in a bit of a tricky position when Boris Johnson might be arguably moving on to what's seen as traditional Labour ground? You know, how do you differentiate yourself as a party? Yeah. You expose what is rhetoric and what is reality, simple as that. I had... Um, I had, a few weeks ago, I had this discussion online uh, with an audience with Bernie Sanders, um, the American socialist who ran for the presidency a couple of times, got huge support, never got on the ballot, but then he supported Joe Biden. And I said, how are you working with Joe Biden? Because what Biden is doing seems to be, he seems to recognize the enormity of the challenge we face. And what Bernie Sanders said, well, first of all, I get on well with him, always have done, as on a personal level. He said, actually, he has been convinced that the problems we face, both in terms of climate change and the grotesque levels of inequality within our society, in America and globally, means that you have to go big. And I said, actually, that's true. So he's now got a working relationship with Joe Biden, where Joe Biden listens to the, his ideas. And, you know, Bernie Sanders represents the left in, in the Democrat Party. So he listens to the ideas of the left. And he's taken them and he's running with them. Now, obviously, he has to get them through Congress and Senate. And that's tough when you've got you know, balance. You know, only just got a small majority of the casting vote of the chair. But actually, what Sanders said, the confidence people have in Biden is because he's recognized you have to go big. Now, what I'm worried about in this coming budget is there'll be lots of announcements. In, and it sounds great. But then, when, as always with Boris Johnson and Richard Sunak, you go underneath the surface and it's not on the scale that the hype has promised. And as a result of that, I just think as a result of that, we're running out of time to deal with some of these issues. And, and just on that point about the Democrats kind of having, particularly in the Biden, having this kind of big umbrella approach and the work with Bernie Sanders, is that something that could be learned from for the Labour Party over here? Keir Starmer? Yeah, I think I think there is. And I've been open about this. So uh, when Jeremy Corbyn and I stood down as leader and, and Keir was elected, it had a great majority as well, Keir. Um, it, we basically said, look, he's a new leader. We don't want to happen to him what happened to us, which, you know, we had the half the parliamentary Labour Party attacking us on a daily basis. 
we had coup attempt after coup attempt. I spent half my time trying to overcome coups. Eventually it settled down, but it was just such a waste of energy and time on ball. You know. So I, we said, look, we'll do all we can to support him, and that's what we've tried to do. But he promised two things. One, unite the party. Uh, and secondly, um, he published a program, which was largely based on a lot of the ideas that we had. Two things have happened. The party has not been united. The broad church approach that we wanted to intake, he doesn't seem to be pursuing as well as we would want it. And then secondly, some of the ideas that he stood upon when he was elected leader, um, he's moved away from. So what the point I've been trying to make consistently to Akira and anyone else around him is actually the best thing to do is unite the party. Do what Biden's doing. Biden listens to everybody. But he's taken the ideas of the left. But in addition to that, he'll make sure he has a proper discussion with all wings of his party. And in that way, they've held together pretty well. And that's the way they defeated Trump, to be honest. It was all those youngsters mobilizing that vote to, for Biden that defeated Trump. So I, there is a lesson to be learned from the way Joe Biden has gone about some of these basic elements of economic policy in particular. Do, do you think there's a way back to, to, to get into that point or is that ship sailed? Because it, it feels like looking from an outside perspective that the party doesn't seem particularly happy internally at the moment, certainly not united. Well, I was hoping, I think you've got a strong point. I was hoping that Labour Party conference would be the point that um, Keir um, would demonstrate united party, vision of the society we want for the future and some elements not you know not publishing the manifesto now but some elements of the policy program that we could um, campaign for in this coming period the point i was trying to make to again Keir and the people around him is that if there's a lesson to be learned from the december 19 2019 we brought on two years early and it's all bread what we try to do is throw out as many policies as possible to excite people. And then what happened was, and this is my mistake, so what happened was that there were so many policies coming out, people thought individually, like the broadbanding, they're great, but together we don't believe you can implement that sort of scale of program. So the lesson from that to learn really is that with a new policy, you need about 12 months to bed it in. So you announce it, then you rebut the criticisms that inevitably come from your opponents, and then you start bedding it in. How do you do that? You explain what it will be to people, but also you explain what will be in impact on local communities, in regions, etc. And in that way, over that 12 months, you stand a good chance then of demonstrating how that particular policy fits in with the overall program and the vision of society you want to create. I was trying to get across before Labour Party conferences that we could be into a general election in 18 months. So you haven't got long to get those policies out there and to prepare people for the sort of vision of the society that you want. And unfortunately, the, the conference wasn't that. There was, you know, it was all constitutional changes. And I just thought that was a complete diversion of our attention unnecessarily so. So I'm hoping now what's needed is there's a clarity from the Labour Party leadership about this is the sort of society we want to create. Here's some of our ideas. And then you start engaging people about how you develop those ideas at the local and regional level. And in that way, we stand a, I think we stand a good chance of winning the next election. But if it's still, oh, let's, you know, arguing about the niceties and final de fine detail of Labour constitution and rule book, no, and it looks like a divided party, people won't vote for a divided party. That's the lesson, isn't it, really? Just picking up on what you said about... Um 
going into the 2019 election, one of the things I was going to ask you about was whether the whether you did have any regret from your time as, as Shadow Chancellor and working with Jeremy. Was that kind of the big one, that maybe the manifesto in 2019? Was well, it, uh, it was more, yeah, no, it was more this. Um, 2017 to 2019, I don't think we had, in the way that we did up to 2017, where we came very close to forming government, between 17 and 19, we didn't have a strong enough narrative developed that, you know, about the society we want to create, how we do it, and what the key messages were around that. And that was partly because, one, we were so diverted onto Brexit, and every time we raised an issue, people interpreted it by Brexit. We talked about the NHS. They'd talk about the money on the side of the bus that was going to the NHS. If we talk about investment, they'd argue that, well, you couldn't do that under the EU, that sort of thing. So everything was via Brexit. And we, the problem with the Brexit issue is, you know, the vast majority of our members and our supporters even in many constituencies were pro-Remain or for a second ref- referendum or at least trying to get the deal uh, agreed democratically. And whilst a lot of our supporters, including my own constituency, were pro-Brexit. And it was a horns of a dilemma we couldn't get off. But nevertheless, I think, just leave aside Brexit, the strong lesson to be learned isn't about the actual what happened in that last few weeks of the general election campaign. It's the development of a clear narrative for the two years in advance of that. And that's why I'm trying to shape the Labour Party and say, you need to do that now. Please learn that lesson. Well, I took the hit for that general election campaign because I was a part of the leadership. Uh, about at the, so therefore, if I've taken that hit, sometimes when you've lost something like that, people say, well, you lost it, so you shouldn't be listening. Actually, the people who lose in those fights are the ones who've learned the lessons more thoroughly. So that's one of the lessons I've tried to get across the Labour Party. It doesn't seem to be learned at the moment, but I'm hoping it'll quickly pick up the pace on that. I just, I know you said... Sick of talking about Brexit to a certain extent, but was the Brexit policy, which was effectively another referendum, was that the wrong policy for Labour? Couldn't do. We couldn't do anything else. We had to, we had to try and arrive at a sort of rational compromise if we could in the sort of British tradition. But we could, because of the way in which our support was so divided amongst us our membership and our supporters. So we couldn't really, I don't think we could have done anything else. People have said to me, you know, why weren't you more of a Brexiteer? Because you would have won the held on the red wall seats then. Actually, if we'd have done that, we'd have lost just as many in those remain seats. We couldn't win on that one. It's as simple as that. So that that is the lesson for that election. But we've got to move beyond the whole issue of Brexit now. And we've got to concentrate on... What is the big issue? And the two big issues for me is, one, the threat to our very existence. You know, I've got grandchildren. I, if, we don't, if, if we don't move on some of these issues now, my grandchildren will not have a future. You've seen what's happening in California, the floods in the global south and the weather changes that there are at the moment. We've got to wake up to that. So that's the first one. The second thing is, I don't think we can continue living in a society where there is such levels of inequality. In my, I, I represent a working-class, multicultural community on the ed, west edge of London in the, in the West. And actually, lots of people say it's more like a northern town. It's that sort of sense of community still. But it's tough. It's hard. And we've got – it isn't just because of COVID. My area used to be high, you know, high wages, that sort of thing for ordinary working-class people. Most of that has gone now. It's insecure work. 
Well, people are working all hours God send just to keep a roof over their heads because this, the house prices and the rents and mortgages, things like that, it's really tough out there for people. And to be faced then with what is effectively a wage freeze for most people in the public services and beyond, or wage cuts for some, with inflation letting rip again, I'm really worried for them. So we've got to tackle this issue of inequality within our society which I think really stains the whole of our society now. Can I ask you, um, just on that, picking up on kind of um, something that you said in an interview with Alistair Campbell in 2019, um, obviously inequality is a massive issue for you and, and things like that, but you said to Alistair Campbell, he asked, where would you rate yourself on the left-wing scale and where would you rate him on the left-wing scale? And you said, him six, you nine. So <laughs> how, how would you describe your, how would you describe your politics then? I was trying to be very generous for Alistair Campbell. To try, <laughs> I try must and, admit, I did think that was a very generous well, for Alistair. I was desperately trying, the only reason I did that interview, because I was desperately trying to get a period of quietude from him before an imminent general election and I've had so much stick from people about doing that interview and I said look I I would have sat down with the devil if he had just (laughs) given me a little bit of peace to run for that general election campaign oh that was funny in in terms of left and right I'm always seen as on you know solidly on the left Um, but I've been trying to say to people look the Labour Party has a broad church. The reason we call it a broad church is because if you look at our history, we were founded. Well, it's quite interesting how we were founded. Trade unions, some of which were more supportive of the Liberal Party at that point in time than you'd describe as socialists. But trade unions, some of whom were socialists, some not. Um, Fabians, who believed in the you know gradual technocratic change within our society itself. You then had Christian socialists. You then had those sort of people around William Morris, actually a bit revolutionary, but developed the cultural aspect of the work. But also you had Marxists as well within Heine and others. That uh, Keir Hardy, I remember, read some of Keir Hardy's speeches. They're actually uh, socialist about a transformation of the whole of society. So you had that broad range. And what I'm saying to people is actually, that's what the benefit of the Labour Party is. You have that range of views. And I always quote, well, I'll quote Harold Wilson, you know, look at him. He had, a, when he was prime minister, much denigrated, but he had a cabinet of left, right and centre, of course, and they were huge people in it. You know, you're talking about what they describe, I don't like the expression, but they describe in some parts as big beasts. They were real, you know, solid, big names and real characters with strong views left, right and centre, and it was rumbustious. But as a result of that, you got better decision-making. And what I keep saying to people, don't mistake democracy for dissent. You know, you're always going to have arguments within a a broad coalition like the Labour Party. But as a result of that, you do get better positioning. Can can I ask just two things on that? Um, So you mentioned Marxism, and you've been asked a few times of you, are you a Marxist? What's your answer? I always say, look... As soon as you get into that, are you Marxist or not, you're completely missing the point. I keep saying to people, if you haven't read Marx, you do not understand a capitalist economy. When we, What was interesting, I was rather amusing, when the banking crash happened in 2008, 
one of the books that was so popularly on sale was Capital by Karl because actually it does give a good analytical description of the operation of capitalism and how it works. Simple as that. So I'm saying to people, look, one, don't blame Marx for some of the regimes that came out of it that called themselves Marxists. That's like blaming Jesus Christ for what happened in the Spanish Inquisition, you know. And I come to that as a... As, as, as brought up as a Catholic, you know. But the whole point is, don't close your down, yourself down to reading that tradition of economic analysis and political analysis in particular. And again, what I recently I've been doing a history of class struggle in this country, going back over eight hundred years to the peasants' revolt in the medieval period, to the civil war um, during the Cromwellian period to Chartism, and I've just been doing a bit about the foundation of the Labour Party and the Attlee government as well. And if you look at that tradition, the thing I think that we may have lost in some of our political discourse, and I think we've lost it only recently, is a thorough understanding of the political thinkers of this country over the last 800 years. And again, you go back in you know, the Peasants' Revolt, John Ball, um, you know the the slogan when Adam delved and Eve span, who then was the gentleman. It was it was very much about equality, and then you look at um, what happened in the Civil War. Some of the writings uh, about um, again democracy, Gerald Wilson Stanley, people like that. Uh, and in in addition to that, you've got to remember a lot of the Thomas More's Utopia. You know the. The advisor to Henry VIII, mind you, he got his head cut off, as did many others in that time. But the, the writing of Utopia, which is an incredibly socialist tract. In my, so I've been trying to remind people there's a long tradition in this country of socialist thinkers, and people need to wake up to them a bit more because you learn the lessons of history in that way. And it does give you ideas about the sort of future society that we want to create. So uh, you're effectively saying that, that you admire lots of socialist thinkers and Marx may be among them or is that an unfair summary of your position? Well, I, I always say that I'm a socialist and you've got to include in that tradition that vast range of socialists otherwise you don't fully grasp what being a socialist is within our society itself and you I just want to wake people up to the fact that in this country we have had immense socialist thinkers going back eight hundred years a lot of them almost written out of history you know and so the other thing i just wanted to pick up with you i've just got two more things and mm. thank you so yeah. so much for your time and being really generous with it is i was just wondering you became an mp in 1997 mm. uh, along with a lot of other labor politicians i was just wondering have you been watching the blair and brown documentary on the bbc and if so what have you made of it one i haven't I'm okay. saving it up. I'm saving it up. But okay. people keep on asking me, have you watched it? Have you seen it? And uh, uh, there, there have been a range of comments put to me about it. But I'm I'm going to do a binge watch of it at some okay. stage. <laughs> I've been a bit, it's been a bit hectic in my constituency and also, as you can note, in Parliament on a number of things. Yeah. So I've decided I'm going to binge watch it one weekend, most probably next weekend. What was it? What was it like that time? Because obviously... Although you well, were part of Labour, you were, you know, you, you rebelled against... Yeah, I, the I, the Iraq war. I stood in 1992 for my constituency and I lost by 54 votes. 
okay. and I stood again in 97 and we won a solid majority, etc. I was a great admirer of John Smith. John Smith was the Labour leader after Neil Kinnock. He was centre-right. He wasn't my politics, but I had such immense respect for him. He was honest and decent, but he knew the Labour Party. He was at, his, the Labour Party was in his heart and he understood it. And I actually think in 97, I know Blair has got the praise for winning the election. Actually, under John Smith, we were 20 points ahead. The Tory support had collapsed. And what then happened was that John Smith tragically died. And then there was sort of a vacuum. And then whether Gordon Brown or Tony Blair would take over, and they did the deal and Tony Blair took over. I actually think we won that 97 election on the basis of people exhausted with the Tories, but also on the basis of the ideas and the positioning that John Smith had developed. And I just wish he'd had a chance of going in government. I don't believe, you know, the Labour government then did some fantastic things, you know, and I supported it. The investment in education, Blair was right, education, education, education. The investment was fantastic, but then the things tarnished it. So I, the Tories closed the school in my constituency, and I occupied it. We occupied them, stopped them selling off the land. Labour came into government in 97. We thought, fantastic, we're going to reopen the school, we're going to rebuild it, and we did. But then they forced a PFI upon us. And it was just crushing in terms of um, the, the financial cost of that PFI and that sort of thing. And the governors refused it, but the Labour, new Labour government insists they had it. So there was lots of great things, but also some key mistakes that were made. And of course, then Iraq happened. So yes, I voted against a number, uh, quite a number of things, but a lot of them I supported as well. I, oh, think that might be an ex I think we've heard you say Tony Blair was right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, on education, not, well, it's, not entirely. No, but. I've always been, whatever people think, I've always been fair about this. In terms of the investment needed and the scale of education, that's exactly, he was right on that. But the way in which some of it was done, I was really disappointed. Gordon Brown's, I just have nothing but admiration for the way in which he targeted child poverty and he lifted children in my constituency out of a life of poverty. Fantastic. Do I wish it had gone further? Of course I do. But I would have wanted more redistribution of wealth in this country. And I think we should have had more control of the banks. I was calling for public ownership, etc. And interesting thing, you know, when the banking crisis came on, you've got to admire people for having a bit of wit about this as well. When the banking crash came on, I was the first MP. I know Vince Cable claims this is not true. I was the first MP to raise the issue of Northern Rock in Parliament. And people didn't know what the hell I was talking about. Yvette Coop was on the front bench left the chamber to get a briefing. And I said then that actually we've got to, we're going to have to nationalise these banks to stabilise the situation. Alistair Darling initially refused. He was the Chancellor. Then he refused. Then two weeks later, we started nationalising banks. And I got up and said, well, you're doing it now. And to give him his due, he had a bit of wit about him. He did say, look, John, you've been calling for this for 20 years. You were bound to be, you were bound to be right on one occasion. And I have to say that was a brilliant response. But it was, so there was lots of good things, but lots of criticism. Of course, the Iraq war was such a disaster, and the way we went into it was short of disgraceful. The two things that really got to me, I think, were Iraq war, um, but the other thing was tuition fees, because I say time and time again, for me, education is a gift from one generation to another. It's not a commodity to be bought and sold, and that's what tuition fees did, and that allowed the Tories then to come in, and whack them up, triple them, you know, and a lot of people been hit very hard by that, younger people. Um, well, thank you. Yeah, I was just going to mention on tuition fees, I think I was 
the year before tuition fees came in, it was like £1,500. And now you look at it and you think, wow, it has gone up all Well, you think, you know, people like my son and others are coming out with £50,000, £60,000 debt. And the irony of all this as well, which I said to them from the gun, sorry if this sounds arrogant on my part, but I did say it, this system isn't going to work. Mm. You knew economically this was not going to work because there wouldn't be enough payback. So what's happened now to try and save the system, they whack the interest rates up beyond them for the got a private company doing that in addition to that they're having to write most of it off because it's not being paid back people can't afford to pay it back so the system is imploding now and i just think the best way forward is just scrap them all together and pay for education in the normal way through general taxation well look, thank you so so much for your time just one final thing that i just wanted to ask you about if you've got one more minute sure. is obviously we're speaking now a few days after the killing of David Amos, which has obviously shocked the nation and sparked sort of a renewed debate about security for MPs. I was just wondering what your experiences have been and also if you if you have any kind of view on the way forward, because it seems a very, very tricky balance between protecting yeah. MP security versus maintaining the democratic tradition of things like constituency surgeries. It's interesting because um, people are talking about uh, it's, uh, David Amos is an absolute tragedy and Joe Cox before that. And David Amos I got on pretty well on. I'd served on a number of all-party groups with him, you know. And I, again, it just, it's heartfelt, really, for his family. It's terrible. It's really a tragedy. The same with, was with Joe. But, you know, violence in our politics... It's been around quite a long while, and, and usually it's coming from the far right, not just other groups. I know this is David Amos seems to be a terrorist attack, but we've had it from the far. When I was on the GLC, um, I had all my windows smashed. I had a bottle broken in my Charles Sampit. I had every wheel nut on my car loosened. So at that, and that was when the it was the time of the far right, the National Front, the MP, that sort of thing, targeting us. So it's been there for, for quite a while. Um, and I now regularly, we get threats all the time, to be honest. Every MP does. And it's become almost, it's become almost the norm. You know, you get, and somehow you just have to, two things. One, you have to make sure that you've got things, practices in place that keep you, your family, and your staff safe. So we have, over recent years, we've moved to an appointment system. Um, so people will come to the office or their email or phone up. We'll secure an appointment form. Often they'll want to see, if I'm not there in the office, they'll want to see a member of staff and get things dealt with quickly. Well, we do an appointment system, but before the appointment, we try to do a bit of a check as well. Do we know them? Are they definitely constituents? That sort of thing. And then in the appointment system, there's always someone with me. And we're, we're in a relatively secure area in that sense. So we have to take those precautions. When I'm doing visits and things like that, and I do these walkabouts in the constituency where I let people know I'm coming to their street in advance. If they want to see me, they put a letter up in the window that I've sent them. So I do those by having people with me. And the usual response is pretty good. But you just have to be that, that bit more careful now because the, the threats the threats begin to escalate and the social media stuff is just obnoxious you know the troll the trolling that you get is just appalling 
and the the women MPs and people. The women MPs were also the women of colour, Diana, and the black MPs get it even worse. It's pretty horrible. So something's got to be done about that in terms of the social media platforms. But otherwise, it's I would never, I, I don't want to lose the ability to meet constituents. That's what it's all about, people being able to get hold of you. And a lot of it is dealt with emails and stuff like that, I know. But sometimes people say, no, I need to see you face to face. And so doing that, I, we must never let that be prevented. So we've got to find mechanisms to, to do that, definitely. I don't want a police presence at my office or anything like that either. The police are great in my community. If we need them, they'll be there and all that sort of thing. But people are hesitant about coming to you um, about a complaint, etc. if they see heavy security and things like that. And sometimes some of the stuff is quite confidential, you know, and, and, and they feel that you've become then an arm of the state. That can't be right. There's no easy answers. No, no there answers. isn't. There isn't. It's trying to get that balance right and it will shift. And, and you know when there's a period of heightened tension, additional mechanisms might be necessary, you know. We've had... Um, I live in the constitution. I've been in now 45 years, something like that. People know where I live, and sometimes they'll pop around the house rather than just come to the office. And again, I try and say, look, by all means, let's have a chat about your problem. Why don't you just ring me tomorrow? Why don't you just email me? We'll meet at the office. That's but it's uh, that sort of uh, interaction is wonderful, but increasingly now, when it's a bit heightened like this, you have to be extremely careful about that sort of thing. Well, look, thank you so, so much for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Um, much appreciated. Absolutely fascinating hearing what you had to say as well, too. Okay. Thanks a lot. Thanks for the invitation. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Pod's Own Country. If you have any topics you think we should be covering or any stories you think we should be digging into, please get in touch with me um, via email, chris.burn at jpimedia.com dot co dot uk and speak next week